Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text appointed for today teaches about temptation. There are two types of temptation. There is the temptation to sin. This temptation comes from the devil and it seeks to ruin us, as we see in Genesis chapter 3. But there is also a temptation to good, which is also known as testing. This tempting to good, or testing, comes from God, and it strengthens our faith. We see this with the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, where it says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Christ's temptation in the wilderness is not merely a temptation to sin. Here, the prince of darkness reveals himself plainly. And if you look back in the Old Testament, we see evil spirits here and there, but they are usually working behind the scenes. But once our Lord Christ appears, the demons come out of the woodwork. Why? It's because Christ pulls back the curtain, so to speak. His gracious presence reveals how great the spiritual forces which are against us are. As we just sang, the world is filled with devils all seeking to devour us. And they work day and they work all night to drive us into sin through alluring, tempting words. And yet we have great hope because our Lord defeats their honeyed lies with his plain, immutable truth. In Christ's victory, we are more than conquerors. And this text, our gospel text, is not only a comfort for us in that Christ has put all things under his feet, but he also here gives us an example of how we Christians deal with temptation. Today, we will meditate upon how we Christians dare in faith to overcome temptation and brave the crosses of this world so that we might enter into glory with Christ. First, we will talk about daring. Second, we will talk about what it means to do this in faith. And finally, we will talk about overcoming temptation and braving crosses. The first temptation that Christ undergoes shows us how we Christians dare. To dare is to have the courage to do something difficult or dangerous. That is exactly what our Lord Christ is doing in our text today. Our Lord dares to do his Father's will, to be sent out into the wilderness and to bear it patiently while he is being assaulted by that most basic necessity, hunger. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Hunger daily bread. This is the temptation that the devil offers our Lord. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. It is as if the devil is saying, Jesus, you say that you're the Son of God, and that's fine. But if you are God's Son, if you are the creator of the world, then why do you hate the good things that you have created? Why do you suffer hunger? when you claim to be the one who gives food to all at the proper time. Eat. You need to eat bread so that you might have the strength to do the work of your supposed father. I mean, don't you know your Bible? Haven't you read that the Israelites did not heed Moses, 
because of the anguish of their spirit and cruel bondage in Egypt? You first must take care of yourself before you can take care of others. This isn't so different of a temptation than what we face today. When I was in school, we learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it's a pyramid of sorts. For Maslow, the foundation for all other human motivations and for culture itself is physiological. That means we need food, water, clothes, and of course, daily bread. If we are to reach the top of the pyramid, transcendence, then we must first have the bottom of the pyramid, bread. We also encounter this with the Marxists, both past and present. While there are many things that we vehemently reject about Marxism, our text today points out one Marxist teaching in particular, in which they say, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. For the Marxist, every single person in history, from the manure-splattered peasant to the diamond-encrusted king, from the ignorant wage earner to the classy billionaire, lives, moves, and has their being exclusively in daily bread. For the Marxist, everything that anybody ever thinks is because of their daily bread or because of, their, of the lack thereof. Everything that they know is based on daily bread. For the Marxist, daily bread is not only necessary for physical life, it is the prime mover of history and of culture. And this is the devil's lie. And it is the great temptation in this age of resurgent Marxism, heralded by Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and Occupy Wall Street. But this temptation comes to us in subtler forms in the church too. There is a story about this. It's a story about St. Thomas Aquinas, and the story goes that when he came to Rome and he looked somewhat amazedly upon the mass of gold and plate and the treasure that he saw, and the Pope goes up to him and says, Lo, you see, Thomas, we cannot say as St. Peter of old, silver and gold have we none. No, said Aquinas, neither can you command as he did the lame man to arise and walk. Think of that, to have gold and silver, but to not have the divine command. That's a tragedy. To have prosperity, but to not have the power of the word, that is a sign of a dying and dead church. To trade the heavenly birthright for an earthly pottage of stew, that is the temptation that the devil is offering to Christ right here in our text, and that is what he offers to us daily. But Christ reveals the truth. He actually inverts our devilish, temptation-ridden way of thinking. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our Lord quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, which puts Maslow's pyramid of needs right on its head. Man is more than his belly, Man is more than his money. Man is more than his daily bread. And this should be obvious to all of us who have indoor plumbing 
Not to be crass, but what comes in goes out and is flushed down the toilet. Food perishes. It cannot be the source of our life. It cannot be the source of our being. The fount of our life must be something eternal, imperishable, and unfading. How then do we apply what we have learned? As Christians, our lives are grounded on the foundation of God's word. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, neither eating nor drinking. He was sustained by the almighty power of God. Jesus himself was sustained by God's power in the wilderness. The children of Israel were allowed to go hungry in their wanderings, so that way they might learn this lesson too. Man does not live by bread alone. If he bases his life on bread, whether that be bread or money or position, then his life will grow hard and moldy, just like the expired loaves at the grocery store. Do not strive for bread which perishes, because you will perish with it. And that is the warning for you. There's also a promise in this temptation. Jesus' words are true. Man lives by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. That means that you have, right now, the eternal bread which never, ever perishes. Your life is hidden securely with Christ in God. Right now, you feast on the hidden manna of God's word, which gives you everlasting life. And this is bread that you buy without money and without cost. There is no shortage of God's word like there is for eggs. Right here, right now, you have life. Growling stomachs cannot end this immortal life. Grueling mortgages, dead-end jobs, or the gray monotony of daily life cannot stifle the unfading vigor which God, God's word provides. This eternal bread is yours, forever yours. It does not spring from lifeless stones written in killing words by the finger of God. No, this bread comes down from heaven and is near you. And the more you learn it, the more you listen to it, the more you memorize it, the more you ponder it in your heart, the more eternal bread you will have. Because this bread, unlike all other bread, does not end up in the sewer. This bread changes and it remains with you for all time. And this bread doesn't just give you life. It gives other people life too. Others will live because of God's word which proceeds from your this is the great promise of Jesus' answer to this temptation. So dare, dear Christian, if you have life, which you do, then you have everything. Poverty, shame, loss, and even physical death cannot take life from you if you possess God's word. Man does not live by bread alone, by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Thus we dare. We dare to speak what we believe. We dare to live in a sinful world, but not be of it. We dare to oppose the devil, the liar, and the murderer. We dare to fight our own flesh. And we dare to tear out our own evil stone hearts. But we dare in faith. And that brings us to our next temptation. Our Lord Christ says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. 
He says this in response to the devil. Here, the devil tries a new tactic. He too can quote God's word, and he does. He quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11a and 12. Here, the devil seeks to create presumption, not faith. The scriptures are no longer words of comfort, but they are an intoxicating, heady draft which we greedily quaff. Here, in this temptation, a man would force God to protect him on man's terms. This isn't faith. This is flesh. You see, the flesh is religious too. It will try to manipulate and use God to its own advantage and to its own glory. Thus, confidence in God's word devolves into conceit for oneself. The quiet spirit of the Christian is replaced with the loud, brash braying of the fanatic. Twisting the word of God for one's own ends, these people can justify all of their thoughts and all of their behaviors. This sort of devilish behavior can be summed up in Shakespeare's Richard III. But then I sigh and with the piece of scripture tell them that God bids us to do good for evil. And thus I clothe my naked villainy with old odd ends, stolen forth from holy writ, and seem a saint when most I play the devil. Under the cloak of piety, great evil roams free. People abuse the Eighth Commandment by silencing any godly criticism of their speech and their behavior. With the scripture passage, judge not, many seek to justify and promote evil and silence godly words. And to be brotherly, a man out of love jumps through the labyrinthine fiery hoops of the LCMS bureaucracy, only to be told that our modern Sanhedrin has already given its imprimatur and that our concerns are irrelevant. I mean, think about it. Is Jesus really only laying down methods of procedure in Matthew 18? Or is Jesus' goal to point out sin and to effect reconciliation? The application of this second temptation is also twofold. There is a warning. God's word is abused. And God's word is most abused where it should be held in the highest regard. The church. Men crucify the Bible daily. They beat the Bible to conform to the status quo of their own lives. They force the scriptures to be a holy contortionist, which bends and dislocates its poor limbs to suit me. Because obviously God's will be done, and wouldn't you know it, his will was the same as my will all this time. But this is the devil's temptation. The Bible does not justify my actions. It does not justify my thoughts. The Bible actually condemns my actions, my thoughts. The scriptures don't just condemn my bad and my sinful thoughts. It condemns all my thoughts, all my actions, all my feelings. As the prophet Isaiah says, all my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. May God save us from such a terrible misuse of his holy word. But the promise is here too. Christ teaches us how the scriptures are to be used properly. Scripture interprets scripture. And isn't this wonderful? 
The Bible is not just a bunch of Legos which you can put together any way that you like. The Bible is living and it is active. It is a unity, just as I am a unity and just as you are united. And while there are differences in veins and arteries, hands and feet, they are united by one beating heart. So it is with the scriptures. The beating heart of the scriptures is Christ, who justifies the ungodly sinner by his innocent suffering and death. And so when you read the Bible and you come to something that seems dark, uh, obscure, or contradictory to what you have learned, go to the clear and the simple parts of Scripture. Go to the verses listed in the small catechism. And there you will find your answer, along with comfort and hope. We've talked about daring, and we've talked about daring in faith. Now we must talk about overcoming temptation and braving the crosses of this world. This is the third and the greatest temptation which the devil brings against Jesus. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. While this seems like a weak, obvious temptation to many, I guess I'm not convinced. I believe that this is the greatest and worst temptation. Because it's like the devil is saying to Christ, look, I'm not an unreasonable devil. In fact, I'll give you everything. You can have it all. You can have Rome, you can have Babylon, you can have the far coasts of the Americas, you can have the frigid mountains of Sweden, you can have the tropical isles. All of it, all of it can be yours. And you don't have to do a thing. You can have a kingdom without a cross. You don't have to endure insults and indignity for the next three years. You don't have to be beaten or whipped or suffer a slave's death. You don't have to see your servants struggle to preach and teach to the nations where they suffer hatred and shipwreck and the like. Hitler, Stalin, Roosevelt, every one of them will bow down and kiss your feet because you are the Son of God. The liberal and the legalist will hold hands and sing kumbaya in your name. Your gospel doesn't have to be a sword. Your message doesn't have to cause division. You can have perfect church unity, perfect civic unity, perfect family unity. The whole world can be united under your name. And so let's life hack this world, Jesus. Let's press the easy button. All you have to do is bend the knee to me. A kingdom without a cross. A scepter earned without suffering. It's quite a deal. And yet, it isn't possible. Because the easy path is not God's path. There is no cross, then there isn't a kingdom. And if there's no cross, there's no glory. If Christ didn't bear the scorn and the smiting, then there is no salvation. And so Christ submits to suffering because he loves his Father, because he obeys the first commandment. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Christ suffered and entered into glory. The application is clear. A 
disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. We will suffer here too. But we will not suffer like Christ suffered. His death made propitiation for the sins of the whole world. We can't suffer like that. But Christ does invite us during this Lenten season and throughout our entire lives to take up our crosses and follow him. God gives us crosses not to atone for sin, but to kill the sin in us and to discipline us because we are his sons by faith. And that's why we should dare in faith to overcome temptation and to brave the crosses that God sends to us. Because crosses are signs. Crosses are signs that God loves us. Crosses are signs that we are Christians. Crosses are indications that we are striving to fulfill the first commandment. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Because to worship God is to defy the devil. To serve God is to subvert this world. And when you do that, you must needs carry your cross. Crosses are the hard way, the steep way, the narrow way, and they lead to glory. Just as Christ suffered and entered into glory, we too shall be brought into glory after carrying our crosses. The Apostle Paul says it very clearly. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. After the temptation, there is tenderness. and After misery, there is mercy. After the cross, there is care. And this happens not only in heaven when we die, but it also happens in this life too. As our text says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Our road is not always dark. Our wanderings don't always take us through the wilderness. God knows our frame. He knows we cannot bear infinite crosses. And so he sends angels of mercy to tend to his Son, so that we might be assured that angels really do attend us, we who are the heirs of salvation. We Christians dare in faith to overcome temptation and brave the crosses of this world that we might enter into glory with Christ. Christ has won the victory. In him we are more than conquerors. And so let us take great comfort in the temptation of our Lord. He has won, and we win in him. And let us take, also take confidence from this encounter as well. Let us learn from our Lord, so that we might dare in faith to fight temptation and carry our crosses, knowing that he promises us an unearned and everlasting glory with him. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.